Are we there yet? It's a question every parent has heard with an eye roll and an exasperated groan from the back seat. And the way the question is asked often presumes an answer, doesn't it? Are we there yet? It's a frustrating question for us to hear even when we're in the front seat, isn't it? Because we remember what it's like to sit in that back seat. And we carry with us memories of that back seat in that old station wagon without air conditioning, stuck to the seats in the heat of summer. Amen? (laughs) And we too, we would prefer to be there as well, wouldn't we? We too ask, are we there yet? Now, maybe when we ask that question, are we there yet, it's not necessarily related to an arrival at a particular destination, at a particular place. Maybe when we ask the question, it has to do with our career. Am I there yet? Have I climbed the ladder as high as it can go? Maybe we ask that question in our most important relationships. Are we there yet? Is this as healthy and happy as our marriage can get? Maybe we ask it in reference to saving for retirement. Are we there yet? Do we have enough? We ask this question all the time in a million different ways. Are we there yet? One author calls it destination impatience. We all have somewhere we want to go, somewhere we want to get to, something to achieve. Are we there yet? And we are not the first ones to ask this question, are we? I take great comfort in knowing that it was a common question among Jesus' earliest disciples as well. And we look at one of those instances this morning in the, the final week of this series we've called On the Third Day, thinking about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. I want to invite you to hear with me from Acts chapter 1. We'll start in, in verse 1. Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Notice, um, Luke begins by talking about the first volume of his two-volume set. He implies that, that what Jesus started to do in the gospel is only the beginning of what Jesus is doing in the world. Acts communicates what Jesus continues to do through the Spirit. After his suffering, after Jesus' suffering, Luke tells us, Jesus showed himself to these men, to his closest companions and disciples. At one time, over 500 people are there. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, or, or in water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are we there yet? Right? This translation in the New International Version smooths it out a bit, but Luke implies that they ask this question repeatedly, time and time again, over and over. Are we there yet? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? How about now? How about now? 
How about now? John Calvin once said that there are as many errors in this question as there are words, which is a 16th century attempt at a joke. (laughs) But remember, these disciples learned from Jesus about this inbreaking kingdom for three years, day in and day out. They learned from Jesus that God's kingdom is for everyone, everywhere. It can transform every aspect of our lives. It can bring healing and wholeness, reconciliation and renewal to the entire world. God's kingdom is no small thing. But their question, with as many problems as it has words, shrinks God's massive mission down to a much more manageable size. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? These disciples want the restoration of their nation right now. They are longing for a political kingdom. They are looking for territorial boundaries and borders. They want Jesus to serve the interests of one group of people. And they want it yesterday. Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There are two parts to Jesus' response. There is God's power and there is our patience. God's power and our patience. One of these things is without limit. The other is in short supply. (laughs) And we know this. We know this. One of our very own prophets, St. Thomas Petty, put it this way. The waiting is the hardest part. Right? For you Tom Petty fans, with his disciples, the heartbreakers, the waiting is the hardest part. But that's what Jesus' disciples are called to do. They're called to wait. There's a cardiologist named Meyer Friedman who once studied human patience or lack thereof. His interest in impatience was sparked after his upholsterer noticed the pattern of wear on the chairs in his waiting room. They were wearing out in the front. People were sitting on the edge of their seats, quite literally, which makes sense for a cardiologist office. It's a place of waiting where we don't want to be waiting. Friedman went on to identify what we now call type A personalities. Those who are chronically aggressive and angry and impatient. He later coined the phrase, hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. He defined it as a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things, to participate in more and more events in less and less time frequently in the face of opposition, whether real or imagined. Meyer Friedman coined that phrase almost 50 years ago, in 1974. He said, our society has hurry sickness. You can see it by looking at the chairs in my waiting room. And this is where we find the disciples, 40 days after the resurrection. They are asking that question, are we there yet? Have we arrived? They're looking for, they're longing for things to be how they once were at Israel's height of political power and prominence. They want Jesus to be that kind of king. The kind of king that wields that kind of power to expel the Romans from the Holy Land once and for all. 
And it's easy to sit back in our chairs and to chuckle about how their question has as many errors as it has words, but really it's an understandable question, isn't it? Think about it from their perspective. Their rabbi had entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Our closest equivalent might be the first Tuesday after the first Monday every four years in November. Palm Sunday had a lot of hopes and aspirations built into it. And, and their rabbi came into Jerusalem like a king would. This Jesus had campaigned on the promise of God's inbreaking kingdom. Through that Passover week, pollsters analyzed the swing voters in the crowd. And on Friday, their candidate was defeated. Think about it from these disciples' perspective. Their candidate lost on that Friday until three days later, I don't know if you've heard, the vote was overturned. <laughs> Jesus was victorious. Jesus was vindicated. Like when Harry Truman held up that Chicago Daily Tribune, remember that? Read, Dewey defeats Truman. No, he did not. The disciples thought that death had had the last word. But there was a word after that. Amen? And if King Jesus had won the day, if Jesus had defeated death, then what couldn't he do? The disciples are thinking, hey, wear the crown, the crown, sit on the throne, expel the Romans, rebuild our borders, and do it all ASAP. The disciples had tread on these topics before. Remember when the sons of Zebedee wanted to call down angels in a holy war against one particular precinct that wasn't voting for Jesus? Uh, remember when Peter pulled out a sword and cut off some guy's ear when they tried to arrest Jesus? These are type A personalities. This is destination impatience. This is hurry sickness. And it is a dangerous place for a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a theologian by the name of Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is quite a name if you know anyone who's expecting and is looking for a creative moniker. <laughs> That's quite a name. Hans Urs von Balthasar puts it this way. He says, he says, patience is the basic constituent of Christianity. Patience is the basic constituent of Christianity, the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure unto the end, not to transcend one's own limitations. Not to force issues by playing the hero, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb which is led. Patience, the basic constituent of Christianity, the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure for the long haul. Patience is grounded in the good news of the resurrection, isn't it? That God is at work in the world, even when it doesn't seem like it. That God was at work in the world for those three days when it seemed like all hope had been lost and our candidate had been defeated. Patience is grounded in the good news of the resurrection, that history is going somewhere. Even if it's not evident, like, like a field that lies fallow, but is anything but dormant. It's no mistake that Paul's long list about love starts with patience, right? Love is patient, and so to live in love is to live in patience. Patience with God. Patience with ourselves. Patience with our spouses, 
with our friends, patience with our children. Let me say it again for those in the back. Patience with our children. (laughs) With our children, all of them. Impatience, on the other hand, may be the root of all sin. Think about it. We become impatient for what we want, how we want it, when we want it. We have grown up in this, in this culture uh, uh, where Burger King reigns supreme, where we can have it our way and really fast in the drive through right? See, impatience may just be the root of all sin, whether it's something to buy or a relationship to change or an accomplishment to achieve. Tom Petty was right. Waiting is the hardest part. And when we cut corners and when we take matters into our own hands, we can run in front of the one we are supposed to be following. Our difficulty in waiting echoes those earliest disciples who wanted to call down those angels, those earliest disciples who reached for the sword. Are we there yet? Our culture is not so different from Alice Wonderland. Remember when Alice meets the Red Queen? And the Red Queen tells her, Now here you see it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you have to run twice as fast as that. See, our culture is like a treadmill. Time has become our most precious commodity, and it is the thing that we have the least amount of, which means we're always impatient, which means we might miss the way that God is at work in the world. And what's even worse than that is we might miss our opportunity to join in. Jesus responded patiently to his earliest disciples, just as Jesus responds patiently to us. What does he say? It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That word witness uh, refers to someone who tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it goes even deeper than telling the truth. In in Greek, the word is martus. Let me hear you say martus. Martus, yeah. Martus is where we get our word for martyr. See, a a, a martus, a witness, is someone who would not only tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, but would give their life for that truth. And friends, this is the call on our lives as disciples who have been called as apostles drawn in as disciples to sit at the feet of Jesus, but to go out into the world on our own feet with the good news of Jesus in ever-expanding spheres of influence. Jesus says, well, it starts in Jerusalem, home base, but then it, it extends into Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, God's kingdom is big. God's mission is bigger than our mindset. Jesus' response has two parts. One is limited, excuse me, one is unlimited, and the other's in short supply. But here's the point. God's power best partners with our patience. God's power best partners with our patience. That's why Jesus constantly took his disciples to those remote places for times of prayer. We heard it twice in just 10 verses in Mark. They were healing diseases and casting out demons and being beckoned from one town to another. They were heroes, hometown heroes. But Jesus says time and time again, let's get away for a bit. Let's hit the pause button. Let's pray. Let's be present. Jesus is concerned about destination impatience in the lives of his disciples. Jesus is concerned about hurry sickness. 
50 years ago, Meyer Friedman told us that hurry doesn't actually increase productivity. Jesus tells us that long before upholstery was worn on those waiting room chairs. See, even in Jesus' ministry, God's power best partners with our patience. Perhaps you've seen that in your own life. If you think back to times that you wanted to get something done, do it on your own and do it really quickly, and then you look back, and, and hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And you think, boy, maybe I should have spent another moment or two thinking about that, praying about that, pausing to receive God's guidance. You see, patience reorients that question, are we there yet? Patience reorients who we are, and also under, reorients our understanding of where there is, where we're trying to go, where we're trying to get. But God's power best partners with our patience. It helps us be reminded that wherever we want to get, wherever there is, we cannot get there alone. And we don't even really know where we're going unless God directs our steps. In her book, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, there's an author named Tish Harrison Warren. And I love every word she's ever written. It's all brilliant. She, she describes this impatience that we deal with, this hurry sickness that we have, by uh, discussing traffic in Texas's Interstate 35. She says her kids were strapped into car seats and they were kicking the seats in front of them. It's hot, everyone's tired and whiny, and her map app showed a thick red line stretching on for over a mile ahead. Around her, she describes cars honking their horns incessantly as if that will somehow fix the accident or the road construction that lies somewhere in the future. Ever been there before? Ever been tempted to honk that horn before? But she questions, what if in traffic on I-35, we travelers all forsook our destinations? We, we forgot about our commitment to wherever we were going, and we came to believe that this grimy interstate is all there is. What if we left our cars and we set up cots on a dingy stretch of highway? Someone pulls a grill out of a truck bed and starts a barbecue. Maybe we set up a poker game. We aren't going anywhere. Eventually, we all conclude, well, there's nowhere to go, and we simply make ourselves as comfortable as we can. Before long, people begin to hoard food. Fights break out. People siphon gas and squabble over jumper cables to keep the air conditioning going. We each stake out our own territory, and we try to eke out an existence on the interstate, believing that gasoline fumes and concrete pillars are all there is. This is the way the world has always been and always will be. It would be a disaster, she writes, out of touch with larger reality, we would have lost track of our destination. We would have forgotten that there are better ways to live. See, Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, Jesus' promise that the gift of God would come for the people of God and lead them forward, that's the best way to live. Jesus reveals to us not only a Father God in heaven who is for us, not only God the Son who is with us on earth, but he promises the gift of God in the Spirit who is within our very beings. The Apostle Paul will write, you yourselves are temples of the Holy Spirit in which God resides, in which God dwells. And only with God the Spirit in us 
are we able to be faithful to the call of God on us? See, I don't know about you, but when I run ahead of God trying to get something done in my own strength and my own power, it doesn't always go that well. But pausing to receive God's spirit within us, God's guidance to us, sets us on that trajectory to where we're called to go. So to be witnesses, to be martuses, willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to give our lives for that truth requires receiving God's power and God's presence. But to receive his power and presence, we need to be patient. So where do you need God's power today? Where do you need God's presence today? And how can you be patient in waiting for those things to be given? Friends, the good news is this. The candidate who seemed like he's lost has won. He's won the day. But we live between election day and inauguration day. Where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because of Jesus' victory, all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Amen? But we live between those times when we know that he has won the day and that he will be inaugurated for the whole world to bow their knee and to confess. And because of his victory, we can trust that Jesus sends his spirit, not only that God is for us, not only that God is with us, but that God is in us to empower us, to equip us. May we slow down enough to receive the gift of God's guidance. May we slow down enough to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we recognize and freely admit that we suffer from hurry sickness, destination impatience. We live in a world that tells us to get something done, we've got to do it. And it needs to be done yesterday. God, we are, we are like that red queen running on a treadmill faster and faster, asking that question, are we there yet? Father God, would you help us see that we are there when we are where you call us to be? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. May we receive the gift of your power and your presence. May we receive the gift of your guidance that we might be and even more so become those witnesses, those martuses who tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, who give our lives for that truth, the good news that Jesus has won the day, the good news that Inauguration Day is coming. So God, give us patience, we pray. We cannot muster it up on our own. We do not have it within us. Would you send your spirit to give us patience and peace as we rely on your power and presence to lead us? Father, we think of everything going on in the world. We give thanks for the progress here within our own country's fight against COVID-19, and yet we look around the world at others created by your power and in your image who continue to suffer deeply. God, we think of 
the war that has broken out in your holy city in Jerusalem. And pray for peace, for the peace of Jerusalem. God, would your wisdom guide all of your people in seeking peace in times of conflict. And God, we pray for ourselves in the midst of those questions that we would ask about arrival at some particular destination, that you would help us deep within our souls to rely upon you, to wait upon you, and to rejoice in the good guidance you give. Father, we pray all this in the strong and steady name of Jesus, the one who taught us to pray this prayer, your mission for the world. And so we repeat it now together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 